Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Brian Mason, and I serve as minister in this congregation. I'm grateful to be joined this morning by Donica and Margaret. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us online this morning. Since 1870, this church has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, gender expression, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you're welcome here. We are currently worshiping online only, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter or follow us on Facebook for updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship this hour. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting if you're following along at home. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please join in singing our opening hymn for all that is our life. Thanks that we are all life is a 
Today's poem for all ages is Nine by Wendell Berry. I go by a field where once I cultivated a few poor crops. It is now covered with young trees, for the forest that belongs here has come back and reclaimed its own. And I think of all the effort I have wasted, and all the time, and of how much joy I took in that failed work, and how much it taught me. For in so failing, I learned something of my place, something of myself, and now I welcome back the trees. And now we'll sing our children's song. I'd like to invite you now to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. Take just a moment to center yourself, as is your custom. If you pray or meditate while you're sitting down, go ahead and take a seat. If you're out on a walk, you're welcome to stop, sit on a park bench. The snow's melted off by now. And journey with me into silence with these words. Spirit of life, of past and future, memory and promise. Even as our hearts break open with thanks, the tears of people echo through our gratitude. We pray for those who mourn that they will know comfort and consolation. We pray for those who live in pain or in sickness of body or mind that they will know healing and relief. We pray for those who are oppressed that you will bring them justice and mercy. We pray for those whose lives are bound by war and violence, that they will know peace. We pray for friends and loved ones. We pray for distant strangers. We pray for those who lead nations. We pray for those who cannot pray for themselves. And we pray for our own needs and grieving. Now let us call to mind the joys and sorrows of our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen.
This morning's reading comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, focusing on chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. Paul writes, Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled in a flame. Be alert and cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help the needy. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies, no cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. There and ends the reading.
I think it's safe to say that as a society, we could use a bit more humility. Modern culture places such value on external accomplishments, on appearance and power. About a decade ago, a team of psychologists released research they had gathered over the course of 30 years, from 1979 to 2009, which was published in the Personality and Social Psychology Review. What they discovered by interviewing scores of people over three decades was a sharp decline in what they called empathic concern and perspective-taking. In these rather clinical terms, they observed an overall decline in empathy and open-mindedness. Now, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but the research basically says a lot of Americans are narcissists. So yes, we could use a bit more humility. But the question is, how can we teach it? It turns out that humility is hard to teach. After all, if tomorrow you wanted to read about how to be humbler, and so at the store you found a book called How I Became Humble, I don't know about you, but if I saw a book with a title like that, I would definitely think it was written by a jerk who just wants to show off. Science shows that humility doesn't really start until we're about 10 years old. In studies with kids around 10 years old, it was discovered that they were most trusting and the kids were most interested in actors who displayed curiosity about the world and about other people. The children in the study routinely said they didn't want to spend any time with the actors who were dismissive or unwilling to share their thoughts and opinions. So we naturally... We naturally like humble people. And I find this massively confusing when you consider that Americans are, in fact, growing less humble and more intolerant. But the quest to teach humility has other motivations, too. It's been documented by psychologists that children who are modest and humble about their intelligence and their accomplishments routinely score higher on IQ tests and they have unique behavioral tendencies. So what they tend to do is these humble kids with high IQs, they tend to seek out mentors, and they have a greater preference for and enjoyment of working with peers. The humbler kids tend to be smarter. They surround themselves with wise elders, and they genuinely appreciate the input of other people. So it turns out that the world would indeed be a better place if we were humbler. We'd be smarter. We'd work together more effectively. But the question still remains, how can we teach it? Research on how humility can be taught has exploded in the past 20 years. Idea labs are in search of strategies and practices that will help foster humility in people. And so far, the best anyone's come up with is this, nature adventures. In their clinical words, they call this nature-induced awe. Now, to be clear, psychologists are not talking about Pollyannish enjoyment of butterflies and napping outside in hammocks, though I will say that activities like that are good for you and you should do them. But their research points to experiences in which you become aware that left to its devices, nature will almost always kill you. 
Just read a biology book or consider that most of the known universe is hostile to human life. And then you'll quickly discover that nature is indeed beautiful, but it's also very deadly too. So if you really want to learn humility, let nature scare the crap out of you. And then if you survive, go sleep in a hammock. In one study on nature-induced awe, a 17-year-old kid said, and I love this quote, when you stop and look around, you realize how profoundly unimportant you are to the natural flow of life. When, I'm say, when, I, when I say that I'm left with this feeling of awe and an impression of the extraordinary beauty of it, it makes me profoundly aware of how unimportant I am personally. That's a 17-year-old kid who said that. It's as if this kid channeled Ecclesiastes. If you remember, the poet wrote, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Amidst the backdrop of life, we are but a grain of sand on an ocean beach. The kids wise beyond her years. So I suppose Humility 101 would go something like this. Think on your cosmic insignificance. This is necessary because our ego lets us believe we are the center of the universe, that we can control what's happening. The all that's being described by this young person is what Buddhists call the experience of vast space or the cosmic mirror. The suggestion to meditate on cosmic insignificance is a response to the tendency we have to think that we are in control. We work hard to present to other people as important. And we've designed tools like email and social media that help us think we're always needed when we are really not. We get a professional title or two, and maybe you're lucky and for you life is nothing but a breeze. But I don't know anyone who's managed to avoid all of life's pitfalls. Something happens because it always does. And sometimes we'll feel like the world has fallen out from under us. We grow weary in retirement. We get fired. We make a big mistake. Someone goes away from us. We suffer a disabling health event. Our egos try and hold on to everything, but eventually reality sets in and the ground falls away. Our hearts beat quicker. And some of us get bitter and lash out, but what Buddhism teaches is that when this happens, we shouldn't run from it, but rather we should relax into it. This is why most religions teach prayer and meditation. If you pray and meditate on your fears and anxieties, you'll be more open to them when they arise. The Buddhist nun Pema Chodron says, and I quote, if we keep seeking out and taking advantage of these opportunities to be present with our discomforts, our nervous system will increase its capacity to hold uncertainty, ambiguity, and insecurity. Rather than following our egos that become manic with powerlessness, we should settle in with discomfort. We should open up to it and get curious about it. And we should feel vulnerable. In other words, we should get humble. 
One of my Old Testament professors enjoyed reminding students that the Bible says, the beginning of wisdom is awe of God. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who fled the Nazis to America and went on to teach and work alongside people like Martin Luther King Jr., he translated the word awe as embarrassment or loss of faith. For Rabbi Heschel, the beginning of wisdom is embarrassment. Wisdom starts when we feel awkward, when the going gets tough, when we're knocked off center. Most of, most of us, I would say, and myself included, we try and avoid adversity and failure. But oddly enough, I've learned more from the hard parts of life than I have ever learned from the easy bits. This is why our faith encourages us to take a deep dive into our hearts and souls, even the dark and scary parts. Our faith wants us to be realists when it comes to how we see ourselves and the needs of the world. Now, Rabbi Heschel was a devout Jew, but he was also a mystic who believed that no religious community could claim monopoly on religious truth. He believed that religious observance has an ability to reduce our egos so that our hearts and minds grow open to the cares and concerns of others. Heschel was a realist when it came to assessing the human condition. He thought we possessed great power for good, but he learned from direct experience our potential for evil. Rabbi Heschel wrote, and I quote, I am afraid of people who are never embarrassed at their own pettiness, prejudices, envy, and conceit, never embarrassed at the profanation of life. For Heschel, embarrassment is meant to be productive. Without it, he thought humankind would become cold and hard and calloused. Heschel and thinkers like him were embarrassed by modernity's promise that we could overcome obstacles with human rationality. Man cannot live by reason alone, Heschel would often say. He and many others pointed out that human rationality advanced modern medicine and transportation, but human rationality also paved the way for atrocities like Auschwitz and Hiroshima, slavery and segregation. Heschel looked around at the world so sure of itself, so wrapped up in the belief that we're perfectible, but perfectionism is the enemy of humility. On this topic, Arthur Brooks, professor of the practice of public leadership at Harvard, he writes that perfectionism is really just a massive fear of failure that holds us back. Rather than take risks and act boldly, we become obsessed with what others think of us and worse, what we think of ourselves if we don't succeed. And so rather than risk embarrassment, which as Heschel shows us is the first step to wisdom, we've invested in the lie of perfection. We've gone all in on human rationality rather than cosmic wonder. We've decided to look good rather than meditate on our faults and take risks and accept uncertainty. We've settled for the status quo, Heschel would say. This desire to maintain the status quo, this pride and lack of humility, isn't just a social and political problem, it's a religious one too. On this topic, Rabbi Heschel said that too many people leave church just as they've entered it, feeling good about themselves. He believed church and religion should be rebellious. It shouldn't be just another reflection of the dominant culture. Heschel believed that church should be an almost dangerous place where you cooperate with others who share a common faith 
to be part of the work required to resurrect sensitivity. He wants church to bring about a revival of conscience. He wants church to spark the divinity in our souls. Church should nurture reverence for the words of the prophets and grow our faith in a God who says you're needed. You might not be the center of the universe, but you're needed. The opposite of good is an evil, Heschel said, it's indifference. You are needed because the world has far too many people on teams indifference and perfection. The church exists so that when it's called upon, it can give its voice away so that the world might hear the silent agony everywhere, so that injustice doesn't fester into indifference. The church, he believed, is a manifestation of the hope that evil will never be the climax of history. How can anyone look at the world in which women are still being prosecuted as witches, where health care is an employment benefit rather than a right, where people's feelings are now regarded as facts, where black Americans are sicker, hungrier, and poorer than white Americans and not feel embarrassed? How can we look deep inside ourselves and see the terrible ways we behave towards the people in our lives who matter most and not feel embarrassed? How can we not shake our heads in disgust when we admit the measures we've taken to avoid painful conversations? The first step to humility is admitting you, me, we are all going to fail. So why try and deny it? When you fail at something important to you, when you fail someone important to you, accept that the road ahead will be long. And when someone or some project fails you, recognize we're all human. Just because someone makes a mistake doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. And the same holds true for you. It just means we're human. More than 40% of adults report they have never had a secure emotional attachment. But that doesn't mean we're doomed. It means we'll need to lean on the love of our faith, our friends and family when we fail because sometimes the road to recovery starts when someone reaches out and helps. So be a helper and ask for help when you need it. The second step is to pray and meditate. According to scientists, humble people have an accurate picture of themselves. They have an accurate picture of their faults and gifts. The only way we'll change for the better is if we take time to recognize what is unhealthy in us. There's a wonderful prayer by Raphael Mary Delval, and he entitled it Litany of Humility. I've changed the words a bit, but I try to remember and pray it at least once a day. In it, one prays for deliverance, deliverance from the desire of being admired, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred to others, from the fear of being humiliated, deliverance from the fear of being despised, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being wronged. And after you pray for deliverance, you pray for grace that others may be loved more than my desire to be loved, that others may be admired more than I am, that others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be praised, that others will be loved. So point two is to make humility the drumbeat of your days. 
meditate on it, pray on it, mumble about it. Thirdly, humility needs gratitude. That means you recognize the gifts that have come into your life. Your lover, your children, your friends, the kids who shriek with joy so loud that it makes you burst out with laughter. It means you're grateful for the 17-year-old who reminds you that you're just a grain of sand on a universe-sized beach. Gratitude for prophets that challenge you and a faith that calls you to be better than you are. And finally, gratitude that your life and living can be a part of the work needed to ensure that evil will never be the climax of history. So get outside and let nature scare the crap out of you. Amen. Arthur Foote wrote, Freely have we received of gifts that minister to our needs of body and spirit. Gladly we bring to our church and its wide concerns a portion of this bounty. Friends and members, the mission and vision of the First Universalist Unitarian Church is made possible by the generosity of people like you. I encourage you to stop by the website and check out all the ways that you can be a part of the work of this church. I thank you in advance for your giving. And now you're welcome to join in singing our doxology.
May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Thank you.